0: Welcome to Point by Point Conversations, interviews, and legal commentary for today's business professionals. Brought to you by Waller.
1: Welcome to Point by Point. This is Waller's Chief Business Development Officer and the host of the podcast, Morgan Ribeiro. On today's episode, we are talking about financing transactions involving skilled nursing facilities. Clearly, this sector of the healthcare industry has been directly impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic, and lenders in particular have been analyzing the impact of reimbursement changes and stimulus relief funds coming toward to, to SNFs. But what we can expect to come in the immediate future... As these funds dry up and how is this sector positioned for the future? Um, so with me today are several partners from, from Waller who focus their time and working with lenders too and operators in the skilled nursing space. Daniel Flournoy and Abby Ruby are partners in the firm's finance and restructuring practice group and Tanya Scharf is a partner in the firm's real estate practice group. Everyone, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Morgan. Glad to be here. Thanks, Morgan. So first, let's talk about where we were at the beginning of this year prior to COVID, what were some of the trends underway in SNF financings and transactions? Abby, I'll start with you.
2: Sure. So I was seeing a lot of acquisition activity with some large operators divesting of skilled nursing facilities and some smaller or more regional operators really growing their footprint I will say it, that has continued since the pandemic began, but the time to closing has slowed a bit with complications surrounding COVID. There was also a lot of discussion by both lenders and operators around PDPM, the patient-driven payment model for Medicare reimbursements, and how that would impact existing operators. That certainly continues to be a point of discussion, but has been overshadowed by
0: COVID.
1: Great. Daniel or or Tanya, anything to add to that?
0: Yeah, no, we saw general. you know, I think what Abby was seeing pre-COVID that, you know, there was still fairly robust credit market deals were getting done. A lot of loans were closing, you know, even kind of fall Uh, 2019 and and even January of 2020 before I think people really understood what the the total impact of, of COVID on the economy would be.
1: Daniel, you know, along those lines, I think once the pandemic really hit the U.S. back in March and we went into lockdown mode, what have you seen since then over the last six months? months.
0: So, you know, you know February and April, February, March, April, it's it's kind of hard to put a pin on exactly when people really started to take notice. I know Abby and I were out at the Spring NIC conference in San Diego. I guess that was early February. And, and it was really just starting to be a a point of discussion at that point about what's this going to look like and what's the impact going to be. Uh, I think that was the first time I actually was introduced into the, the elbow bump instead of the handshake. And so that's kind of a defining moment for me of, of when this really took off. And at that point, the first couple of months, I think lenders were still largely in a, a wait and see mode, didn't really know exactly what the impact was going to be. There were some localized facilities that had high infection rates, some up in the Northwest, some out on the West Coast, some up in the Northeast, but it it wasn't something that most operators were largely concerned with at that point. You know, By April, I think we were starting to see some Some declines in occupancy still, those were were pretty localized. And and oddly enough, it it wasn't the initial concern that I think a lot of people had that, oh, we're going to have these large infection rates hit you know, run through specific facilities or specific regions, I think a lot of the occupancy declines, at least anecdotally, were tied to fewer hospital discharges as hospitals started to defer elective surgeries that normally would end up with, you know, 20 or 30-day rehabilitation stints. We weren't seeing those to the same extent.
2: Yeah, I, I definitely, we saw that as well, that, that that suspension of elective surgeries in hospitals that happened in March and April trickled through to occupancy rates in skilled nursing facilities in the weeks and months following that. And even now, as surgeries have picked back up, a lot of those are outpatient procedures and they're still not doing inpatient procedures as much and therefore less need for the rehabilitation. And on that point too, about declines in occupancy, I think that there certainly is some fear and there was bad press as a result of COVID outbreaks in facilities. But anecdotally, I think, More people are home. People have lost their jobs or are working remotely. And when you couple that fear with there being in the home, maybe there is more ability for people to provide care for someone who would otherwise need skilled nursing care at home. And so all of that, I think, has combined to over the summer and now in the fall have an actual impact on occupancy that will probably continue for a while.
3: I would chime in there as well to say, inspect on occupancy, you also have the flip side of that where the facilities themselves are reluctant to admit new residents for fear that that resident could bring in the virus itself. So you've got this uh, pressure on both sides of
0: it. Yeah, I was going to make that note too. I think, uh, you know, just within the last even couple of weeks, Tanya, and you may have seen this as well, you know, we're starting to see some of those restrictions on admissions, you know, that obviously vary by region and varied by, uh, you know, even different metropolitan areas based on the spread and code rates and things like that. But but we are starting to see even some of the, you know, I don't want to say harder hit areas, but some of the areas that higher had higher infection rates starting to ease up on some of those admission restrictions.
1: Was
2: there anything that you wanted to note in that about the PDPM? So as I I mentioned, that was something that I think like we were all talking about before COVID and the interplay with PDPM and COVID is certainly interesting. I saw at least one analysis that the financial picture for SNFs would have been worse under the old Medicare reimbursement model, but COVID has certainly impacted the new PDPM model. One example is for group and concurrent therapy that was emphasized under PDPM and a lot of operators were poised to really focus on group therapy as a driver of savings for facilities. And of course, that's all but impossible with the pandemic. CMS very early on in the pandemic suspended group activities. And I think facilities as part of their safety protocols have, you know, really restricted that even as restrictions from the government might start to loosen up. So that has certainly been interesting. That's offset by some of the other stimulus relief programs, the PPP loan money, accelerated payment programs that have come into these facilities. Well, and I think that's that's a great segue into our,
1: our next topic. You know, you've mentioned the stimulus relief programs and there's been some adjusted reimbursement rates. Anything in particular that you would note, Abby, about some of those programs and, and adjusted
2: rates? The government funds have certainly been a great help to a number of skilled nursing facilities. Um, One thing, you know, I largely represent lenders in the space. And so one thing that we're focused on a lot is trying to still discern the financial performance of facilities with, the stimulus relief programs that have come in and the, and the dollars that have come in, in particular, lenders who rely on financial covenant testing on a monthly or quarterly basis to ensure the underlying health of the borrower and the facilities that they operate are still processing and working through how to adjust their tests to account for what are essentially really lumpy financial statements and and get to the actual performance. So that's something I think we'll continue to see those conversations as banks and their credit committees think about those issues and as the guidelines and regulations around those funds PPP funds you know at accelerated payment programs change they they change constantly that's something that we are really on top of with our healthcare regulatory team here at Waller to always have sort of the, the Up to date answers on how those programs are shifting and the the rules are shifting under them.
1: Tanya, from your perspective, just on the on the real estate front, what are you seeing in terms of real estate assets in the SNF space right
3: now? You know, my perspective comes more from an owner operator side, although I I do represent lenders as well. But uh, being an owner operator myself of memory care facilities here in Tennessee, I come at it from more of that perspective, and most of my clients are are in that vein. You know, I, I think taking a step back and thinking about the overall impact of COVID, you know, we've lost people in senior housing facilities across the country, accounting for 35% COVID deaths. That doesn't even factor into all of the people that became sick with the virus. Those are just the deaths that resulted from it. You know, Obviously, loss of residence is an integral part of the nature and business of senior housing. Uh, while skilled nursing facilities and senior housing facilities continually face the economic impact of the loss of residents on a regular basis, you know, think of the flu season every year, those losses are generally offset by influx of new residents uh, in the pre-COVID era. In the COVID era, it's extremely challenging, as we mentioned earlier, to offset that loss for multiple reasons, including like we mentioned earlier, reluctance of family members to bring their loved one into the facility for fear that they will catch it at the facility. Um, and then, as we mentioned earlier, uh, the reluctance of the facility itself to bring in a new person that could actually bring the virus in. And in the, in the facility's own inability to potentially bring in new residents uh, due to regulatory matters or the fact that they're diverting all resources to combating the virus already. You know, owner-operators are facing so many different problems in light of the COVID era, including employment matters, thinking about it from that perspective. You know, retention of employees has long been an issue for senior housing facilities. That coupled with a shortage of qualified applicants right now is creating a payroll nightmare for operators, paying massive amounts of overtime to current employees in an attempt to combat the virus's infiltration of the facility and all of the measures that have to be taken in connection with isolation of existing residents that may have the virus. You've also got increased costs in the sheer volume of PPE that's needed to ensure the health and safety of residents and employees alike, uh, specifically the use of N95 masks. It has caused so much of a further burden on these facilities. I would also call out the increased costs of CGL insurance specifically. I'm seeing owner operators in certain instances having their CGL coverage premiums increasing by up to 200%. You know, we've had clients luckily enough to have certain baked in caps in their uh, annual increases in their insurance policies, but we've also seen that not be the case. So uh, I'm thinking uh, on the lending side, as far as lenders may be wanting an increase in their insurance reserves as a result of these higher premiums coming out. Regarding the real estate assets themselves, your senior housing property valuations are declining, as Abby mentioned a little bit ago. Um, in addition to that, from that, and that's just from an appraisal perspective, real property tax rates are on the rise. The foregoing, coupled with all the other financial pressures presented by COVID, has resulted in widespread requests by my clients um, and others uh, for relief from rent payments in the event they're in a leased facility and an additionally loan forbearance requests. Based on my experience, landlords have been willing to offer a few months of rent abatement or rent deferral payment plans are actually more the norm right now. And on the real estate financing side, my clients have been requesting relief from financial coverage As a direct result of the decreased valuations that I noted a second ago, with lenders being somewhat amenable to -to loan-to-value covenant holidays. I've been seeing six months to potentially a year on that. An interest forgiveness period. Some clients have been able to offer up equity cures for financial covenant breaches and requesting or relaxing of repayment penalties. Prepayment penalties. In exchange, I've seen uh, lenders asking for enhancements to informational covenants. Others are more flexing their rights to block distributions to investors or limit those districts only after certain thresholds are met, utilizing cash sweep structures and other avenues to reserve cash within the borrower structure. Just a lot of pressure on operators right now.
2: Well, and one thing I'll chime in, uh, Tanya, for that that is different. You know, we we do on the real estate side, and we also do on the asset base, like the revolving loan side. And a lot of those operators right now, they do have funds? They have funds from the government stimulus programs in their pocket. That then they're going to their lenders. You know, when we we looked at this coming down the line in February and March, and I think we prepared on both sides to be looking at a lot of forbearance agreements, amendments, extensions, waivers, all of those things. And we've seen that on the real estate side, but more on the AR side, we've seen zero balance letters. We've seen borrowers saying, well, I don't want to pay a unused line fee because I have plenty of funds and I'm not using your line at all, who then are potentially going to just want to terminate their lines. And Daniel, I'm not sure what what your thoughts on this are, but they might come to regret that decision in 6, 12, 18 months.
0: Yeah, you know, we've certainly seen the same thing where everybody expected uh, the operators, especially, to take a huge hit to their bottom line. But because of the the various stimulus and, and reimbursement programs and accelerated payment programs that have come in, you know, we're seeing the same things where operators really are flush with cash. And, you know, without getting into too many details regarding what our specific lenders are doing, we have seen Seen our lenders successfully, you know, get creative with their, their loan terms and their pricings and their covenants. And, you know, I think they've been able to hold on to some borrowers that, you know, might otherwise be looking to either pay their loans off or, or refinance them out because of, you know, because they're so flush with cash at this point. And so I, I think the lenders that we're seeing, you know, be successful through this are the ones that are, are flexible and the ones that aren't, you know, too rigid and are, are willing to think outside the box as to, you know, what they can offer their borrowers and what is clearly a completely unexpected situation, you know, both from a societal, economical, regulatory, but also just underwriting standpoint. So, you know, I think that's a, an important point to make.
1: Well, looking into the future, I'd be curious to hear from all of you. And Daniel, I'll start with you just in terms of the expectations and, and challenges that we foresee over the next 12 to 18 months.
0: So I think the big question is when exactly is the government money going to run out? I mean, is it going to last six months, 12 months, 18 months? Who knows? Obviously, I don't think anybody's expecting this current situation to continue indefinitely. And certainly there's the question of the the looming election and, and what impact that's going to have on the various stimulus and relief programs. So it's a little bit tough to say. You know, obviously we have seen some operators that have chosen to go without working capital lines in the short term because they are so flush with cash. I think a big question could be if and when the money runs out, you know, what is that going to look like? like is there going to be a new wave of ABL lending Are all of a sudden lenders going to be back in the driver's seat with more borrowers to choose from or is it going to be harder to get an ABL loan at that type for these these working capital lenders and the operators that that need those funds to kind of bridge the the ups and downs in their in their AR I, I think another big question is obviously for the facilities that have uh, HUD mortgages and they require obviously approval for working capital loans for those facilities And as I'm sure you guys have seen, HUD can get backed up at time and it can take minimum of three months. I mean, sometimes up to a year we've seen for working capital line to get approved through HUD. And so all of a sudden, if we've got a number of facilities that have paid off their working capital lines and all of a sudden have to now go back to HUD, is there going to be a big push? And, you know, maybe we'll start seeing some liquidity crunches for different operators as these loans get get backed up with HUD.
3: Tanya? Well, I think uh, expanding on Daniel's point about when will the government money run out, conversely, when will the you know government run out of money and come back and, and be looking to fill their coffers, if you will. And we're going to start seeing a continued increase in property taxes, I think, putting additional pressure on operators. And then in the very near term, I think what everyone's looking at is the pending flu season coupled with COVID. How's that going to go? And how detrimental is that going to be? Operators are going to need to take a very proactive and thorough approach. That'll be imperative to keep these facilities in operation. But that comes at a very high cost, Harkening back to what I spoke about earlier about overtime, utilization of even more PPE, retention of existing employees, um, and then, you know, getting their projects stabilized, getting people back in the facility. You know, and I'd be curious,
1: just getting practical, how are you advising your clients right now? How do they prepare for this? I think, again, there's just so much uncertainty. Everyone's having to be extremely flexible and adaptable and deal with the unknown at a level we've never seen before. But, you know, if you're offering them up some some tips and advice, you know, Abby or or Daniel from the the lender perspective and, and Tanya from the operator perspective, anything you'd share with our listeners?
0: I mean, I think the the biggest help that we provide to our clients right now is staying up to speed on the latest reimbursement and stimulus and, and relief changes. I mean, I think that's you know one of the the best values that we can provide, you know, both for our. Financing team, but also through our healthcare regulatory team, we've got several folks there that are following the the government releases and bias on reimbursement and what they have to to comply with from a regulatory standpoint, and and helping our lenders understand you know what exactly the impact you know not only of these programs and in the advance payment terms as they're released, but then almost more importantly as they're amended. Obviously, the the PPP loan program that everybody saw at the beginning of the year looks vastly different now. You you know, based on the continuing guidance uh, than it did at the beginning. And and, and watching that and, and helping our lenders, you know, both stay up to speed on those terms, just because there are so many and they're, you know, dealing with their their own issues, you know, related to COVID and the current economic climate. So staying up to speed on those and, and then also just kind of helping them navigate, you know, what comes next. I think staying abreast of the changes and, and staying on our toes is probably the, the most important thing we can all be doing right now. The
2: other thing that I'll mention too, and we certainly Saw, I think, at the end of last year and beginning of this year, that there were some facilities that were probably headed for bankruptcy or receivership that have been able to stay out thus far, in part with support of the stimulus funds and things like that. But for some of those, especially as we do think that 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 money will not last forever. That is probably inevitable for some facilities. And so we're even now working really closely with our restructuring team. We actually have our restructuring team as part of our same group as our front-end lending lawyers. And we all work really closely together at all cycles of the economy. But just to make sure that our lender clients and our operator clients are not caught off guard. If and when those funds do dry up, that they're well positioning themselves now to best navigate through that circumstance. And there are some unique things about the healthcare space and the SNF space that I think makes our team really well poised for those in partnership with our, um, our regulatory colleagues, different than just a traditional bankruptcy group. So making sure that we're, we're ready for that if and when it comes.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think thinking about it well in advance before there is truly a troublesome situation on our hands for both, like you said, our, our lender clients and for our operators. Tanya, anything that you would, would
3: add to that? And I would just close the loop on, you know, our clients are requesting, you know, assurances that they are going, their loan is going to be forgiven and, and closing that loop and making sure that they have what they need to uh, give that to their lender, the evidence that they have been, that loan has been forgiven and that PPP money can be counted on their balance sheet. Awesome. Thank you all for joining me
1: today.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Point by Point, brought to you by Waller. Visit the News and Insights section of our website to listen to more episodes. Subscribe to the podcast, find show notes and more.